Hi everyone, welcome back to uh, the Money on the Left Editorial Collective. Uh, Max here, and I'm here with Will. Hello, Will. Hello, this is Will. So today we're going to be talking about the HBO television show Euphoria. Yeah, since the show ended, I've really just not been able to get enough of it. So this is, I think, my uh, this is a good way for us to cope with the loss we had to extend the experience for another week by recording something for you so you're welcome um <laughs> yeah and with with how much i think we have to say i do think that we could probably just do every single week until season three yeah for years um yeah well the, the one thing that people have uh have been saying about euphoria is it's not extra enough so we're here to <laughs> remedy that for you that's right. I'm certainly going to provide the extra. Um, <laughs> so before we sort of start digging in, because we have a lot planned for you, um, I did want to mention that uh, we have a Patreon. So uh, for those of you who know already or don't know, or if you're a supporter, uh, bear, bear with us. But um, you can find it at patreon.com slash MOL superstructure. And please support us. We are, uh, you know... A lot of us don't have, at the Money on the Left Editorial Collective, full-time academic positions, let alone academic positions at all. So anything that you can do to support our work, pretty much all of it is uh, is free uh, to begin with. And so, you know, it helps us pay writers and, and, you know, pay people who, you know, could use could use their labor being remunerated in one form or another. So Yeah, it helps us do more things that we insist on paying people to be able to yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. So... We really appreciate that, and there'll be a link in the description. Um, and yeah, so I guess for starters, right, this show is called Euphoria. Will, I would like to hear you talk about the name uh, and what sort of what Euphoria means and perhaps what other common, we could say, feelings are, are associated with, with this name. Yeah, the show title Euphoria being about a uh, character Rue, played by Zendaya, um, who struggles with drug addiction. Obviously, Euphoria is sort of a high, um, but at the same time, right, like Euphoria, I think also implies dysphoria. And there's a lot of dysphoria on the show. Um, and I think to start with, I mean, dysphoria immediately stood out to me because most people, um, I think nowadays when they hear dysphoria, think of gender dysphoria mm-hmm. um, and and kind of the the second main character that were introduced to um, Jules, played by uh, Hunter Schaefer, um, is a trans woman. And this is I think we're going to get into something that the show is doing a lot at the level of kind of narrative and editing, uh, which is these kind of analogical comparisons uh, of different uh, characters' experiences to each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, not that not that I have the one definition of what gender dysphoria is, like, mm-hmm. my God, I'm not even going to try. But, um, but what I will say is that uh, dysphoria in general, um, I think of as sort of the feeling that that you get of having to be two people or two things at once right being being in a role um 
that is conflicting with who you are um, or maybe is conflicting with another role, right? Because mm -hmm. um, one, one question that comes up and that I think the show is really interesting and interested in kind of pressing on is, is there uh, who you are to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. That is, that's not always already, yeah, mediated by this, by this texture of, uh, of, of circumstances and situations across people that, that are, mm -hmm. that kind of rhyme with each other. Um, and throughout the first season and the second season too, you know, they bring up, uh, you know, multiple personality kind of like, you know, not, not that a character has multiple personality disorder per se, but um, Lexi, one of the characters tells Rue that it's like she has split personality because right. she just, you know, is changing, changing her story in order to kind of um, get by day to day uh, with, with like a, you know, pressing drug addiction. Um, and and yeah. I, I just want to say, if you, um, if you haven't noticed already listeners, um, we definitely we are going to be talking about the plot in detail, uh, and we haven't spoiled anything uh, thus far. But you can expect there to be spoilers in this episode, so I just wanted to make sure that you know if you, you're make sure you're caught up, uh, or um, if you want to be caught up before you listen, or in general, I think um, listening can to this will maybe be an interesting way, like a lens to to watch in the future. So. Um, so that's a sort of spoiler alert, but but as is typical with us, I think um, this is not going to be a summary of what happened, right? We have <laughs> we have our own agenda here, um, you could say, and 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 I think there's so we want to see kind of what plays out in in meditating on what the show is doing in in multiple registers and how you know initially this euphoria dysphoria we could say problematic, right, is, that is the title, um, is, is a, a very rich, as you said, texture for thinking about society, mediation, and, and otherness, and feelings of alienation, and, yeah. and, and all of that. And, and these are, these are things that, uh, that we don't plan to resolve, but that's in part, uh, a kind of a formal decision that we're making because I think that the show also doesn't really try to resolve that either, right? So we get a lot of examples of dysphoria in the show, yeah. Um, yeah. as well as uh, as we'll see later. You know, this kind of meta reflexive commentary on what it's like to view a show that's about topics that might be triggering and might cause dysphoria too. Um, so dysphoria. Is sort of all over the place yeah. um and euphoria obviously has this association with drugs and you know a high um but i and i don't think that the show uh is is particularly interested in you know kind of reducing drug use to escapism um or the the kind of the goodness that's associated with it as somehow like not real, right? Like mm -hmm. I think that um, that the euphoria that's felt in the case of Rue, and we'll talk about uh, all the characters soon once we're kind of um, done setting up some of the broader themes. Mm -hmm. So for Rue, uh, her drug use in the the sort of 
the highs that she feel right that she feels right these are simultaneously one could say maybe they're causing problems in her life but they also are facilitating her closeness with her father um it they're they're present in a lot of relationships that the show does not want to invalidate necessarily mm -hmm. so I, I and i think that that's as close to a definition that kind of holding the good and and the bad without relativizing them and saying yeah. that nothing is is good or bad because good and bad don't exist right mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but also not resolving them into this is good overall or right. this or is there, bad overall or that there's some underlying nature that the good and bad was just laying on top of right that was just like a superstructure on top of i think we <laughs> we in the show would certainly want to resist that more nietzschean reading absolute in in in, in, in its absolute terms um yeah so so this question of euphoria is we're gonna defer it here um yeah. because i think that it's what we want to kind of explore but i also i also think it's deferred in the show right and so yes. we're, we're in a way i think there's there's some uh somewhat i hope is is creative uh generative imitation going on here yeah and and we've already started sort of describing the show in in general terms and and if you're not familiar i mean we obviously would recommend that you do watch the show um it is you know it it, it it's difficult at times and i think that's important to say and it's a part of this and we're, that's something we're going to dig into as well mm -hmm. um but i i also think it it's a generative experience um and that I, I i think i use that um those two words very uh very specifically um and with intention the you know the the show in some senses has has a sort of kind of baseline uh, availability to us in our popular culture, right? It's a coming of age show set in a high school, mm -hmm. set in the suburbs, right? It's a sort of ensemble cast, and there is, there are drugs, and there is love, and sex, and drama, and fighting, and there is um, moral ambiguity, and and there 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 are plays, there, right? There's a there's a school play there like right so the show is, is in general terms um its characters are sort of you know inhabiting a world that is familiar at, at some level and i think again we're we're gonna keep sort of performing this sort of familiar yet very unfamiliar right in in some sense right but not but but not there's not a contradiction there there's something coherent no about it's it. it's not it's just not identically familiar right? exactly. it's not identical to experience that you've had um and yet it's certainly for me there have been parts of the show that are at, at certain kind of affective and intimate levels um mm -hmm. you know triggering of some kind of an experience that i've had mm -hmm. um and that's not even necessarily because i was watching a character you know, like the character that i would say on paper is the most me <laughs> or whatever yeah, right yeah, um because yeah. there's there's this sort of oscillation that's that's happening um from the spectatorial position with with all of the characters right like we we kind of um oscillate between embodying these kind of different characters and again right not in a flat way that that says that this character who 
has to live a double life because they haven't come out of the closet is uh, two things at once in the same way as the gaslighting abusive character right. is living two truths at once. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. You know, this is not to not to flatten or level, right? But I but I think that this non-identical uh, familiarity that that sort of like the word euphoria, right, is a little bit deferred because it doesn't have a stable there's not a stable common denominator yeah, of all yeah. of these experiences. Um, I, I think that the, just the crazy high like viewer count of the show and like mm -hmm. the fact that it's averaging like 14 or 15 million views per episode. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and that's including kind of, you know, playbacks um as well uh, I, I think that the nightly like premiere viewing average is more in the six million ballpark um and the finale broke the record for like the entire season um and so that's that's really interesting to me just to kind of note that this is happening in the midst of what seems to be a kind of a, a turn towards really violent social conservatism in our politics mm -hmm. and our political rhetoric. Yeah. Um, and so there's something really affirming about the fact that this, this show is, you know, it, it thematizes queerness. Like I think in, in a lot of ways, yes. Um, yes. it's, it's form. Like when, when we say in, you know, in literary studies or whatever, like queering a text, you know, kind of showing that that cultural artifacts or cultural practices that sort of try to pass themselves off as, you know, kind of essentially straight or heterosexual, um, in fact, cannot help but harbor space for uh, for counter readings and, you know, people to point out that, you know, and we see this a lot with with Nate Jacobs, especially, right, uh, who who will get into with the character yeah, breakdown, yeah, but yeah. you know, is this um, closeted, uh, you know, gay jock, um, you know, kind of kind of trope. And I don't think tropes are are bad necessarily. Either. No, no. Um, I mean, yeah. I think I think I think there's a few things I want to I want to like take take your lead on here, right? It's important to say that this show is is yeah, it's thematizing queerness and. It's doing yeah. so in in ambiguous ways, right? Like it, that's another aspect of it, right? There's a lot of ambiguity in this show, and I think we find that those analogies, those relations of ambiguity, to be generative for thinking about the meaning that is made through participation in viewing and in the internal process of the the participation of the characters in this in this sort of world right this world mm -hmm. of ambiguity and and i think um i think i i want to i now want to before we get too far in just <laughs> go down the list with the characters right so you you mentioned rue right played mm -hmm. by zendaya who's the main character and um rue struggles with drug addiction um rue also uh is processing the uh death of her father um mm -hmm. and there's this there's the particular moment that i think uh, i actually want to bring up first which because i think it's interesting right um after her father like before her father died he said to her that uh if she closed her eyes like he would always be there right mm -hmm. um 
And, and and the reason that he gives is that memories exist outside of time. Right. And so I think, you know, this is one of the guiding, I think, themes or figures of the film, especially as, as they're processed through Rue um, and through her, the sort of, the, her drug addiction as a sort of figuration for some sort of, I guess like it, there's an escapish wish wish there, but it doesn't. It, it's it's a deferred one, right? It's not it's not one that ever fully is commensurated, and 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 so there's something there's something there that I just wanted to conjure, right? So there, there's sadness, there's grief, right? The, yeah. the, this is like the some one of the some of the guiding emotions, and and I think moving, you know, you mentioned Jules, who um, is is a trans woman, and. Um, you know, at one point in the show has a has a, a loving relationship with Rue. Um, and and there's, you know, there's a complicated trajectory for that. But um, there's, you know, also a lot of trauma in, in Jules's experience, as as with m- many of the characters. So that's another thing that is foregrounded in in this sort of the, the character makeups. Right. So, you know, queerness trauma questions of memory and and development and time like we're really in quite deep into the like depths of concepts kind of quickly and i think that's something worth saying um you mentioned nate who is closeted Mm -hmm. jock character right um uh, and and nate is also quite violent and is portrayed as a violent uh character quite right off the bat and so there's something there's an important tension um, between his humanity and his propensity to violence and how that the ambiguity between identifying with him throughout the show um, is very complex, right? He yeah. is, he is kind of horrible throughout most of it. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and, and um, I, I also just want to point out like this order that we've kind of gone in, I think that if, if you were to map out a, a narrative order, we're following it so far. But I, I also think that these characters sort of, um, they refract uh, towards each other a little bit um, mm-hmm. where, you know, we start with Rue and Rue and Nate don't particularly have a relationship. Like right. they have they have a handful of interactions and even yeah. those interactions are about jewels. Yeah. Um, and so Rue has this relationship with Jules, and Jules also has this relationship with Nate who has relationships with Cassie and Maddie later, right. you know, that right. we'll, that we'll talk about. Um, and so there's, there's a sense of a kind of a, not, you know, all at once, everyone's equally related to everybody, or even um, all at once, everybody is uh, like like all of these relationships are real at the level of the kind of the narrative diegesis, but they're mm-hmm. real as possibilities. Yeah, yeah. There's like entanglements, and so then there's out of those entanglements, there's there's possibilities, right? So they're they're in a sort of matrix of relationality, I guess you could say, right? And and so there's something, you know, each each character, I guess we could say, is relating multiply to 
every other character through these mediated avenues, right? Or, or, or vias, right? So like you said, with Rue and Nate relating mostly through jewels, right? So this yeah. is a common theme. And we can also think in terms of, um, you know, in defining dysphoria, right? As this kind of, you know, like an experience of this kind of multiplicity when it feels like it's unauthorized, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're not supposed to have mm -hmm. it. Um, and yeah, yeah. I think thinking with euphoria, which is, you know, kind of both good and bad, kind of harbored ambiguously within these same moments, I think it's very interesting that, you know, I mean, with Rue and with Nate, their kind of second personality that we're introduced to or their second persona, right, yeah. or, you know, role that, that they want to play with and experiment with uh, does come across as escapism. Mm -hmm. And but yet right off the bat, we're introduced with Jules for whom her her identity is is extremely uh, creative and and her actualizing who she is as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 creative and also like play like there's a playfulness and a and like a trying on kind of aspect to Jules, right? Where she, you know, like finding a style that that sort of speaks to her as a person and and just a, sort of working things out kind of constantly working things out uh amongst the characters that i think is important and I, I think we can we can move on from there to to talk about cal who is nate's dad and cal is sort of if we could say he's the trope of the the sort of daddy figure right in the show um and not only is he nate's dad and that gets complicated but the show kind of opens with cal having uh having sex with Jules um, mm -hmm. and and in, in a sort of, we could say like an illicit hookup in a motel room. And, um, and, and we find out later that he films this, right? So, um, and it's worth saying, right? Like Jules is uh, a high schooler, right? And Cal is mm -hmm. adult, an adult. Um, and, um, and so this sort of sets off a series of entanglements um, in, in, in a lot of complicated ways that I don't think we're necessarily going to get into all of them, but, um, Cal, Cal is also closeted. Um, mm -hmm. and that, that relationship and, and these films that he's made, um, of people he's, uh, hooked up with, um, become a sort of guiding sort of primary narrative for Nate who discovers them early on in his life uh, when he's about 11 years old and they come to define I think in a lot of ways who Nate is right but but Cal is as a figure is this like double lives daddy um who who's he's very fraught and very um at times he's a villain at times he has a more sensitive side there's definitely ambiguity there too another theme that we're going to keep coming back to yeah um, i i would say he's he's the only unambiguous villain in season one yes which makes it all the more surprising in season two when um they they give cal a, a flashback to his childhood and a, a boy that he fell in love with and and had to leave because his girlfriend got pregnant and that's you know um were led to believe kind of like when when the family uh started i think it's also interesting that cal you know we're, we're we've already brought up memory right and mm -hmm. and cal has this um 
you know, has, has a flashback that in a certain way, um, his, his behavior, like he, what he does in these motel rooms every single time is exactly the same. Hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's repetitious yeah, and, yeah. and compulsive. Yeah. Uh, like he's, he's revisiting this original trauma over and over again. And mm -hmm. it's really interesting then because there's this play in the show, I think also between memory and creativity, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. while for Cal, he is stuck. Yeah. There also will find later the the kind of the culmination of season two uh is a play that gets put on by a character named lexi mm -hmm. you know which is the the culmination of all of this kind of creative processing mm -hmm. of her memories mm -hmm. right and and of what she has seen um and so we're presented with memory as something that is potentially traumatic and potentially mm. something that you know harbors the potential mm -hmm. to to get you stuck right yeah um but then also is is still creative right, right. and is almost like you can draw anything and for some reason you keep drawing this one thing yeah, yeah but that yeah. doesn't mean that you can't draw anything right and and i think just to make the point clearer as it relates to what um rue's father said to her about remembering him right mm -hmm. there is this creative aspect of memory right that is present with us right it's present and in the moment with us yeah. um but there's like and and as you say the the ambivalence on how it can go right Tr mm -hmm. trauma as memory versus memory as a, a creative sort of um way of i guess speaking to to some sense of maybe what we could call uh, sort of mediating or medi like healing, I guess you could say, right? Uh, speaking to some sense of healing. And this sort of, um, you know, the people who are listening to this podcast for the first time ever will probably be like, what the hell are they doing recommending yeah. this? But, um, but I actually think uh, this ties in a lot with an, a Money on the Left interview that was done with Paolo uh, Quattrone, mm -hmm. um, who's, who's an accountant and kind of a theorist of accounting and a historian of accounting, um, who sort of traces this word uh, inventory that comes yeah. from the Latin inventio yeah uh, which which does exactly this kind of straddling the line between you're taking stock of your memories right um you're constructing an inventory of what's happened yeah but at the same time that's a creative and constructive act right mm -hmm. it doesn't just come to you fully formed and fully interpreted in right. some order and all the meanings are already there no you have to do that and actually when you do it and when you access it you're sort of simultaneously like you're you know perusing a library or whatever but you're also kind of the pilot right yeah like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah and and you're and you're shaping what, yes. what's going on and um and i think i'll add to that too right there's the the crucialness of the out of time aspect of what rue's father says to her is that um these memories and this process of inventorying this creative process of making an inventory of accounting as a as storytelling as as speculation um about the future and and about the past um it doesn't it doesn't work in accordance with linear time 
right? Yeah. In, in, as a sense of one moment after the next, as absolutely different, right? There's not, there's a, there's an openness, there's an availability across time of, of disparate events, moments, feelings, thoughts that, that can be, that can be added into the mixture of the ambiguous inventory and that this is a crucial aspect, right? A sort of drawing upon um, aspect of storytelling and creativity in, and, and what I think the show is, is suggesting is that there's, it's very fraught, right? It's a very fraught thing, right? It can, it can be compulsive and traumatic and it can be, as you said, and, and maybe potentially healing, right? Or working through, rather than running away from or rejecting or disavowing. And so um, I I wanted to make sure we, f- we f- front-loaded this conversation with that. And as you can tell, we're sort of building up a big texture at the front of this episode and so that we can maybe process some particular yeah. aspects of it. Um, and, and, f- and, we, and we could go on with characters, but I, I think that, again, keeping keeping with the form, right? Like, yeah. It's it's never fully complete, um, no. and and there are, and in fact there are a number of characters who there's there's just not enough to even bother talking about, right? Um, yeah. There are other characters that I'm sure when they do come up, we'll we'll introduce them. Um, yeah. But but yeah, I, I think that that was like a a good kind of demonstration of of the texture, and it's interesting thinking with textures because uh, there's a term that when when I first asked you to watch the show and I was, you know, waiting with bated breath every, <laughs> every time you finished an episode, cause I'd, I'd been obsessed um, for a while. You, you came back to me with this, with this word and it was, it was very, um, very poetic how this happened. Actually, you were, <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you said, you know, there's this word and I'm not even quite sure what it is exactly, but this reminds me of this word diaphanous. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you want to tell the people, uh, yeah. what diaphanous is, what a diaphanous cloth or fabric or textile is? Yeah, I think, I, I think I, I, before I do that to leave them a bit deferred, I, I want to say yeah. and speak to the kind of, I guess the poetic nature of that process of, of that word sort of striking me. I think, um, I think there was just something about, you know, dare I say the, the vibe of the show in all its ambiguity that that had me reaching for a term that could that that was far afield, but that that felt intuitively correct. And I think so even at the level of that, there's something mimetic in in in, you know, the, the sort of conceptual or textual matrix we're trying to build here for textual yeah. textural you know all these ways in which it, it's coming together and so what does diaphanous mean right and why did i think the show was diaphanous well there are a few definitions and um you know i, I kind of want to walk through them but um so the first is such fineness of texture as to permit seeing through so um a, a diaphanous fabric right is a is a very fine fabric almost a a veil if you will that you can still see through so there's 
if there's you know it's a lens it's a filter there's all these ways in which we could think about it but but there's a the the fineness of the texture of the fabric it 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 sort of i mean it it makes sort of a tint out of what you're looking at behind it and so this is obviously a a, a kind of a a potent analogy or metaphor for i guess the process of that filtering that that yeah right that that the and, show and filtering i mean that mediation yeah right? yeah um, exactly that's, that's i think what one of the things that we're that we're getting at here is that like you know i mean i was kind of racking my brain after sort of thinking like you know where where is fabric kind of thematized right mm -hmm. and there's this play that's happening in the school right and there's a curtain right yeah. and there's kind of what's behind the curtain um mm -hmm. and I think one of the things that we want to talk about with this show is kind of like what is the nature of mediation mm -hmm. you know because if you can see what's behind this fabric and yet the fabric is still part of what you are seeing yeah you know like that's like in a way that's that's a medium um and you know perhaps uh very literal visual analogies are not going to be great for the kind of um deferred no. on and on sort of scales of mediation that we want to talk about but i i will say that you know watching something through a fabric like if you're if you're you know seeing an art piece or something that has yeah. a, a screen behind a veil yeah. right um that veil is going to be part of how you're kind of processing that yeah. piece that you're seeing yeah. um and so there's there's just there's it's just to say that the medium and mediation in general yeah you know infrastructure and all of the things that are that um that immediacy passes through in order yeah. to come to us as immediate yeah. um that that all of these things are are active rather than uh just sort of passive the lens that yes. that is you know the real action is behind or right no right. it actually is part of the action and and i'll say like just to put a finer point on this the social fabric right there's yeah. There's a, you know, I think we all sort of have an intuitive sense of what that means, right? There, whether it's a, a sense of grounding or, or something, you know, the, 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 the undergirding, overriding, sort of permeating context, the milieu yeah. with which we all variously participate. This is, uh, there's a fineness to it on the show. There's a, and, and like, this brings me to the, the second definition of diaphanous which is extreme delicacy of form yeah and and i think this is where we're gonna push right from fabric which has its own uh has its own textural uh connotations to the question of form both as a as an aesthetic uh uh concept as a as a like a, a broader philosophical question um but there's something again here very delicate, right? So there, the the how delicate is 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 for a lot of reasons. It's not just, I mean, there's 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 delicateness in the some of the aesthetic choices, and we can get into that. But I think what I what I want to really highlight is is the characters are delicate, right? They're, yeah, and and the the social fabric is right, delicate. Of the show is very delicate. Yeah. And, but I think that social fabric then is this kind of interesting word that's kind of working in both ways here because you know the social fabric like as 
you know, a, f- a friendship, right? Like that can be delicate. Yeah. But the fact of these two people being part of the same world mm-hmm. is indestructible, right? Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so there's there's a way in which the social fabric can't be destroyed. We say it's getting like like it's getting ruined, you know, like it's shitty right yeah, now yeah. and like it's in <laughs> it's trouble. Shitty. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but it's a fabric and that's in a way that's kind of why it sucks that something's happening to it. Right, right, right. <laughs> because that's ours. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And and so there's something about that like sort of tension and play and ambiguity between, you know, de- being like delicate and feeling delicate as a person. Yeah. Right. Um, and 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 yet being at the same time and and the inalienability of that right even again and i think this show because of the way how the time is not linear even Mm -hmm. in death there's something inalienable about that sort of process of having been or 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 becoming right so there's something yeah which which the show thematizes right yes because rue's dad is still there actively yes exactly and and he's there only in flashbacks and mm-hmm. and and in and you know his funeral and and these these moments right and so um so i think this is why diaphanous right i i hope listeners especially if you've seen the show that that maybe you can you can kind of feel that the <laughs> the delicateness the fineness the 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 constancy the 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 becoming and the <laughs> And the, the the memory and the trauma of all of it sort of kind of in this sort of composite or cascade of textures that yeah, hang together. Yeah. Right. And and I think, and this is the last thing, because then I think we, we really have um, rung, rung a lot out of uh, diaphanous here. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> quite the, but quite the I, metaphor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and, and that's right. The, the diaphanous fabric is not run out wrung out right mm-hmm. it's not taught no. um yeah, and yeah. so this is what's what's interesting about it is you know you kind of imagine this like very light kind of you know ambiguous depths you know and mm-hmm. it's funny after you said diaphanous we spent like as i'm sure viewers now can easily imagine we spent like 20 <laughs> minutes just sending each other images of fabrics um <laughs> because there's it's such a it's such an interesting thing to think with because if if you do like we did to prepare for this podcast google image search diaphanous yeah yeah um you know you'll you'll come up with uh with fabrics that are um not being pulled taut so that you can see what like all of the directions kind of conforming right. to one movement, right? Yes. Like there's there's a way where you you see these sort of overlapping layers in the fabric. Is it folding inside? Is it folding outside? You can't really see because these are just, you know, it's a see-through fabric, right? So that's it's all <laughs> of these different shades when they do overlap with each other. Yeah. Um, and and I think that that also is kind of what we're getting at here with cascading texture right that um you can't understand the whole thing all at once and the whole thing doesn't have just one logic right um and yet somehow this all hangs together Mm -hmm. right this is not disintegrating um and you know i think we'll we'll have more visual 
metaphors for this besides the figure of the diaphanous fabric yeah but, you, um, you can bet on that um <laughs> uh i think we've set the stage uh a little bit um i'm loving all of this kind of uh, <laughs> wordplay yeah um we set the stage now uh let's let's talk a little bit about some of the reactions that people have had to the show um because you know the first thing that we noted is it is um hugely popular in terms of the the viewer count and just you know i mean in, in a certain way this is almost like this big kind of queer communion that's happening every Sunday, yeah. right? Um, literally, the show the show takes place on Sunday and and church and communion are, in fact, themes um, yes. of, of the show. Yeah. And, you know, the viewership between season one and season two more than doubled from six million on average to about uh, like 15 million by the end of uh, by the end of this season. And it's the most tweeted about show uh, of of the 2020s mm -hmm. um but it has uh elicited a wide range of responses um and yeah. and it's a really fraught show in in a lot of ways um and in ways that i think the show kind of thematizes or anticipates like the show does have an answer to that but it also is sort of a it's not a it's not a one-size-fits-all answer right like yeah. I, I do think um I do think that for for folks who are you know triggered like this is a show where you need a trigger warning you know yeah. um to yeah. to watch it uh and and you know but it, in addition to it just being heavy um you know there there's some more kind of uh specific um issues that people have taken with the show or that or that have come out that I want to um signal awareness of and, and kind of take into account as we are sort of taking in the whole show. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and one of them is that Sam Levinson, the showrunner, there, there have been several actresses in the show who said in interviews that they felt um, like they were unnecessarily asked to be nude in certain scenes. Uh, and then, you know, when, when they push back, then then they weren't nude, right? But um, but this, of course, then still like a criticism that the show has gotten, right? Is is also that that there is too much nudity or nudity maybe in a way that's that's exploitative. And I and I want to I do want to separate that criticism from a from any criticism about something that's happening on the set, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, maybe yeah. just yeah. because that's valid and i certainly have nothing to say about <laughs> about that right. in particular yeah i mean i think i think it's important just as we're approaching this methodologically just to say right like we want to talk about these fraught things right not to have a final word on them right and, and necessarily but just also for you listeners so that you know right there there are like there are concerns right and so mm -hmm. concerns about nudity on set and and as a particular workplace issue um that that is, yeah, there, there's, it's, it's certainly unsettling to, to hear that. And, and um, we definitely, yeah, we obviously we don't endorse uh, workplace, explo <laughs> workplace exploitation. Um, and, and that has, and, you know, nudity on set has a very complicated and, and very misogynistic history, right? Um, there is, so there, that, that's certainly a concern. I, I will say that, Later on in season two, I did notice people on Twitter 
applauding the show for for less nudity um which mm-hmm. i think again can can depending on the relations on set can maybe go uh both ways um so yeah i, I think we wanted to make sure to cover that um and then i think secondly one of the main things we wanted to make sure we discussed was the depiction of drug use um and because there is a lot of ways in which drug use which which is a more of a figure right it's both a figure and not a figure mm-hmm. on the show and it's important again to keep that ambiguous tension alive um yeah because everything is is a non-identical experience that someone has had right. with one issue that that is being figuratively compared to a lot of other things and and being kind of yes. made to open up to all of these other resonances so so it it is both yes and and in being both though there is a concern and there has been commentary about drug use being collapsed in the show right so <laughs> and 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 by collapse like at a lot of different registers but sort of you know whether it's this the difference between this drug and that drug uh drugs being used for one purpose versus many purposes right the way that drugs can actually be quite um healing particularly if we think about people who are let's say addicted to heroin right yeah (laughs) methadone and and other uh drugs that are that are necessary um in the care of of this you know of of people who are addicted right and and so that this is something we wanted to make sure we said right and 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 not just to make sure we say but i think i think there is a an important critique of the show that that doesn't you know, make the show uninteresting or uh, that it shouldn't be watched, but that that needs to be given voice to in in all commentary on it about that particularly. Yeah, and and not just the nature of of drugs, like drugs being presented as kind of univocally bad um, or univocally like a vice or something like that, um, but which which again, like I think is is also more complicated in in the show at times too because you know rue accesses like intimacy with her with her father through through drug use yeah Um, yeah, yeah. you know like there's there's it's harboring good and bad um at the same time yeah Uh, but also just in having addiction be the main way that drug use is thematized in the right. show, which it is. Yes. Um, you know, insofar as drugs are important to the show, it's because of addiction. Yes. Um, and that's that's important to say. Yeah. Um, and something that that comes with that also is a kind of uh, what comes across, I think, to a lot of viewers as sort of a one size fits all. Uh, solution or endorsement of a particular way of dealing with addiction right right which is you know which is narcotics anonymous which yeah. is kind of going cold turkey and it becomes even more fraught because this is um linked up to all of these religious themes yeah. which obviously is going to um resonate in a wide variety of ways with a lot of different people because religious institutions also are extremely fraught right and harbor both good and bad things and i think that the show um being a show about queer people with religious themes right like that that is 
you know, is this a contradiction? Like, yeah. and for many people, there is a dysphoria there. Yeah. And yet through the, in the show, I think we find that churches are, um, church and ma and mass and communion um, are compared to other collective settings that are not churches, whether that's kind of the adjacent Narcotics Anonymous um, meeting, or it is this play that Lexi puts on, um, you know, at the end, you know, yeah. this kind of mediated collective processing yes. of all of the trauma, uh, right? Uh, that that doesn't work for everyone right. necessarily, right? Like, and when it comes to Lexi's play, it works for Rue. It doesn't work for, you know, for a couple of other characters who get mm -hmm. really seriously triggered by that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that Narcotics Anonymous also, like, it is problematic that it's kind of the the solution to drug use that gets presented. And the reason that it gets presented as the one solution to drug use is because as a figure in the show, it's kind of doing everything. Um, because I think I think maybe from the show's perspective, it's trying to show that that NA can be more than just NA. Right. Um, you know, that it's not necessarily what a particularly bad experience of NA is like, but just yeah. that that kind of fraught messiness yeah. of people kind of making their, you know, their their sins or their guilt and, you know, all yeah. of these things kind yeah, of yeah. Um, exposed and then sort of collectively mediating that, you know, through, through kind of finding these non-identical resonances with each other. Yeah. Like, like NA in that sense is doing a lot for the show that, that, I think what these criticisms are getting at is that I don't, you know, NA doesn't really as an institution, right. Doesn't stand up to that kind of scrutiny. Right. Um, and, and on the other hand, right. In, in place of NA, what we don't see are various like widely available drugs that people use to taper off of drug addiction and live normal lives. Yeah. Right. Like we yeah. see Rue go through um, hell. Yeah. They, Withdrawals. Um, and horrible yeah, withdrawal, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and, you know, I'll, I'll defer to, to people who are more kind of well-versed in this, you know, and yeah. sort of what options actually are available to people. But yeah. certainly I've, I've read a lot of criticisms of the show that, you know, are like, when is Rue going to, you know, get on this, you know, this drug or that drug to actually deal with the addiction in ways that people who, work with you know community and mutual aid you know kind of modes of caring for people through drug addiction would immediately be like okay this is something you should at least try yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know is of course is yeah, you, yeah. you don't you don't have to you know it doesn't have to be a big come to jesus moment right um and but for the show it's doing that because everything is is a because the show is a come to jesus right moment, so this right? is what i wanted to say right there's there's this broader sense of communing mm -hmm. and community, right? Also communion, right? That That is operating here at, at so many different registers. And I think also what we find, and, and there's evidence for this in season two, where Rue, you know, gets quote unquote clean. Um, again, not through NA, right? There, so there, there are... There's a sort of acknowledgement of multiple paths of community and m manners by which 
to deal with um, the problem of addiction, which again, right, can be read as addiction literally, but also in a way more capacious and broader figural sense, right, as a as a sort of, a, you know, a, an escapist response to grief that that sits in a, in a much wider matrix of social uh, of the social fabric. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, yeah, there there are all the there are these multiple paths um, here. And and this question of community, queer community, queer communion, we're going to come back to and we're going to come back to in, in, in some details ways. But another of the fraught sort of aspects that that we've seen that I wanted to bring up, too, was is um, the way sex work is depicted in the show. Yeah. Right. And or and we can say both depicted and then the way it is sort of conjured as a as a potential uh, a potential mm-hmm. path for Rue specifically and yeah, in, uh, in the context of human trafficking. in the in the right? context not, of not human in the context of empowered sex work. correct exactly and so there is though with the character of um cat in the first season uh a depiction of empowered sex work um and she cat you know uh becomes uh an online sex worker and um there there's you know, it is structured the the, the narrative of, of her um you know, they do they do they don't do her quite well as far as writing goes in the second season. And I think that is largely just to do with the writing of her character. It actually doesn't really take up the question of sex work. But in the first in season one, um this is certainly a theme, right? A, a sort of a, a a way of her to sort of come into come into herself right and to express herself and to have access to to money right that she can use to mm-hmm. for all sorts of different reasons right and so there there is this empowering narrative here um but you know on the flip side of that with rue um she is threatened by a drug dealer um who ha- has you know was speaking from her experience of of essentially being trafficked um, to say, well, Rue, look, worst case scenario, this is always an option for you. And so there's this threat, right? This this threat of of sex work in the context of trafficking. That yeah, and and this becomes entangled with drug use as addiction. Exactly. Also, because yeah. because the the drug use is sort of the bait. Right, that that's yeah. that's used is you know yeah. she she we see her um, try to get Rue kind of more addicted, mm-hmm. right, and and she does so taking advantage of of Rue's vulnerable state, yes, um, in withdrawal, yes, right. So so these so these are, um, you know these these are tropes that that we certainly could associate with anti-sex work and anti-drug use uh you know i mean they're common fixations yes right? yes is is a story yes like that. yeah and so there's certainly there's certainly a lot to be critical of there and and important to take take you know take an inventory of these moments and you know i mean it, such is the case with discussing and and you know whether it's critique or commentary in in an aesthetic register right we we have to take stock of uh, these critiques and then you know try and figure out 
how you know how much they can be applied to the logical structure right how 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 much they permeate the 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 sort of the core desires of the show how much maybe they they're sort of ancillary marginal mistakes and problems that we can account for and then you know perhaps provide counterexamples like this is a part of weighing and and cultural critique in general um and i think certainly um on the on the drug use and sex work point these are the two most problematic areas i think um within the 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 structure and the narrative of the show that 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 we have seen people pointing out and and you know found as well for ourselves um um, I also want to, I don't know, is this a shout out, but um, I, I want to note that uh, Chloe Cherry, who plays uh, Faye, um, who sort of becomes sort of the, the, third, um, the third family member of uh, Fezco and um, Ashtray, who, who I guess we've not talked about yet, but, no. but bear yeah. with us, um, but that actress, uh, was a sex worker prior to this. Um, you know, uh, she was um, an, an adult film star uh, who is brought into the show, her character uh, as an associate, um, sort of a loose associate, associate of an associate of Lori, who's the human trafficker. Yeah, yeah. I think a, a place where we can move on to from those, what well, maybe we would say, um, those like we want to those are certain critiques of the show that we really wanted to wrestle with um there are critiques of the show that i think um we we want to be less uh certainly like less we we, we've we have wrestled with and we've come down that these are um are are you know at some level illegitimate they're 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 symptomatic of broader things that the show is addressing as a matter of uh its own core desire and so the, the 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 sort of title label that that we have and written down in our outline for this is commodification and appropriation. And I think sex work actually pivots beautifully. Yes. To this. Yes. And and so like okay, so like this is we're getting into, um, you know, uh, Marxist terminology here, right? At some level, right? Uh, certainly mm-hmm. with commodification. And so you know, at, what is this critique? What does this mean, right? Just that, and there are many different layers to this. But at the outset, it is fundamentally, this is an HBO show, right? Mm -hmm. They are making money with this show, (laughs) right? Okay, so these narratives, these... Yeah, and a show that that, um, is a spinoff of, or a, a remake of a show that was in Israel. Right. Right. And, and I think that the, that the creator of the Israeli version is still you know, listed as, as kind of like a, you know, I forget what the name of that. It's probably is, it's, an it's kind of like when yeah, you're yeah. A, like quote unquote producer, yeah, but you yeah, don't yeah. actually do anything, but you're like, <laughs> you know, kind of still usually credited, the higher still up- profiting off of it. Right. Yes, I mean, that's, yes. that's, yes. you know, another criticism that, um, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, we're not a, this is not a Zionist podcast. Um, <laughs> Certainly not. No, um, <laughs> definitely not. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think uh, this is a podcast about um, thinking differently about what money is and right. what it means uh, to be, you know, to have a job. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, does that inherently mean that in a, that in a zero sum way, you know, you are 
by virtue of making money, you know, is that necessarily, um, you know, taking money? Right. I mean, <laughs> from, so from someone else to what, what this conjures is that, you know, money and property commodification and appropriation. Yeah. Right. So that it's important to state that because we, I do want to get into our critique of just the, the, the way we, and you know, we've done this multiple times. There's plenty of podcasts. I did a, a uh, intro to theory uh, lecture about this particular way we define um, commodification in Marxism mm -hmm. um, and how it, it is premised on a false foundation. And, and so what we want to say, right, is essentially what, what is being stated in this critique is that these queer themes that the show is wrestling with, all of the wrestling, all of the representation, all of the generative creative thinking, the meditation, the conjuring of a space, the participation by audiences, it's all tainted by the fact of its productive force, which is about making money, right? And about mm -hmm. making money in a way that is for private property, right? It, it's, it's within a property relation that is private. That is yeah, the critique. And, right. And I think that this also gets us towards like what a lot of the because private property and the kind of, you know, liberal philosophical tradition that underpins it, yeah. right, you know, being about sovereignty and, you know, everything comes from ownership. Yeah. And, you know, like this, this ends up becoming the way that conservatives caricature and critique and you know, slander, like everybody yeah. who is, who is involved in, you know, in sex work. Right. Yeah. Um, as, and, and it sort of conjures this sort of like our daughters, right. Yeah, that, yeah. Are, that are yeah. our property. Yeah. And here's what they're, you know, our property is being commodified, right. By, by this outside commercial force. Yes. Right. right? Um, that, that then becomes coded as the sort of cultural decadence and you know it gets real anti-semitic real fast yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um I, I was just gonna say and this relates to i uh, you're just bringing us to the next critique right of the show which is that it's pornographic right yes and we don't mean necessarily pornographic like we, we want to hold like the, there's nudity right that exactly because that is a legitimate issue on set right that we again want to want to hold mm -hmm. space for but pornographic in a in an almost an emotional sense, right? Right, it's overindulgent. Exactly. It is it is pornographic in its depiction of trauma, of suffering, and of um and of the relational dynamics and disputes of this community that it is depicting, right? Which is both the queer community, but also just the sense of a community in general, right? A high school community. There, there are many ways in which this, um, this can be turned over. But the, the essential critique of it as pornographic is back to that point on commodification, right? Yeah, the, and exploitation. And right? exploitation. They, they, they use, um, in insofar as you see pornographic kind of wielded in this way, it's, it's alongside. Um, it's exploitative, right? Yeah. This is exploitative of my trauma. Yeah. You know, you're taking my trauma and you're putting it on the right. screen. So this is, this is, that's the important part. It's about, it's like a, it's participatory in, in, in a way that is kind of confusing, right? Like, because 
it's exploiting me as a viewer by reflecting part of me back. Yeah, by by kind of tricking me into affectively identifying with this character whose problems are not right. me, but whose trauma kind of resonates. Right. And like the easy answer is like, okay, like if you don't enjoy watching, don't watch, right? But but I think at some level it also speaks to the communion aspect of it in general. There is this feeling like at simultaneously, like I had this too, even just like in the episodes that kind of touched on, you know, my trauma and, and, you know, especially the, the flashback episode with Cal, right. And, and all, and, you know, this relationship with his, uh, with Derek, his, his friend and lover that falls to pieces, right. Because, uh, because he, he and his girlfriend, uh, you know, they, she gets pregnant and he has to, you know, they're in a conservative society. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and he has to, right. He has to give in to that, to those external forces. And, and like, but to me, like I felt deeply uncomfortable. Like I had to pause the mm. show a few times. Right. But, um, but the, I think the point is, is like, I felt obligated in a dependent way to the sort of communion of the show to keep watching. And so there's that sense in yeah, which, or or at least to to engage, you know, like not not that you needed to strap yourself down and, no. and watch this because you owe it to the community to identically engage in no. this exact way. No, um, but that you felt like there's there's a you know sort of a a remote communion of people who are checking in and and like clocking. Yeah. shared experiences exactly. and clocking their own feelings and and doing so in a way that is um generative that is refracting them outwards yes right yes. rather than you know it's it's not it's not a show that like that everybody is watching and is like this is so intimately like this is my life exactly no it's precisely um yeah it 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 opens up right it, it doesn't it's not a self enclosure, <laughs> and and so <laughs> that's of, but that's immediacy. But that's precisely it, right? Like for at least for me, and you know, this is speaking just very from my own experience. The processing that was under, like, as a part of my participation, right, and the fraughtness was there's a sort of communal aspect of it, right? It, it's it wasn't mm -hmm. something quite that 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 you know I could just achieve scribbling in my room by myself right, right. It, it was it wasn't it wasn't self-care right exactly right it was <laughs> a, there was a community process that I that yeah that 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 was generative and so um in that sense like yeah it wasn't the get triggered 2022 challenge no no I mean there's plenty of that like there, <laughs> just log on log on to Twitter and look at war news I mean like there's just a lot of yeah there's plenty of that um mm -hmm. but um so yeah, there's something related to that pornographic critique in that. And I think what ultimately we wanted to bring that to is this question of false equivalence, right? Like, yep. and, and what does that mean, right? So it's like, it's exploiting me or it's equating me to exactly this or these characters are being equated exactly. And so all these equations... Yeah. Are being like they're, problematized. They're offensive because this character is a good guy and this character is not. Right, and it's clear and, and clean and like right. It's not messy. How dare the show compare? Literally, I mean, I think that the most stark one that the show offers is Nate and Jules. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because and they they have this kind of fascinating uh, 
Jules is, I think, really constitutive of, of Nate's identity and, and sort of in a certain way, I think the fact that Jules exists, right? Like yeah. Nate's entire identity is predicated on disavowing the possibility of someone like Jules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, but- In his but own with, desire as well. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, because that's, you know, in order to, you know, like if that's the identity, right? Yeah, the yeah. identity is- my queerness doesn't exist, yeah. right? Then like in order to shore that up and kind of police that boundary, it requires, you know, this kind of neurotic attentiveness to, yeah. you know, to queerness, yes. right? To, you know, this fixation yes. that, that Nate, like his dad has yes. also on Jules, yes. right? So Jules becomes this, this object of, of, kind of traumatized, violent, masculine desire, yes. right? And that's a horribly asymmetrical relationship. Yeah. Jules is not hurting Nate, um, right. you know, in, in many ways in that relationship, Jules is, you know, in pretty much every way, right? There's not a way that Jules is, you know, no. victimizing Nate. She, she cares <laughs> um, about Nate. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. she cares about Nate. And Nate cares about Jules, and also Nate is abusive and violent to Jules. Right, and those are all true. Yeah, and, and it's asymmetrical. And I think what's interesting, and like we have to bring this up, right? Like, like this conjures a psychosocial dynamic of mm-hmm. fascist anti-trans politics that is so poignant for today. I mean, w- whether it's the law in Texas recently, just the 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 rising uh, right-wing attacks on uh, on trans access to society writ large, right? And, yeah. and whether it's the medical system or you know, you name it, right? Um, yeah, this this fixation, right? right that that exactly. cis society has on you know, like a bunch of cis like cis traditional family is sitting around a table at dinner time and talking about trans people right. every night, exactly. You know, yeah, like that's. Like, what is that? Right, yeah, yeah. It's the, well, it's <laughs> you know? right. It's this, dis- like you said, it's desire and disavowal sort of mm-hmm. processing through the fixation of socially enforced patriarchal um, fantasy, right? That that the world is singular, univocal, and, and like in this univocal binary, right? And in the failure of that binary, I mean, it in- right, it induces this fixation that has to be shored up through violence. I mean, that this is a, you know, this is not a new reading of, of mass, you know, of, of patriarchy. Right. But, and it's yeah. particularly as it relates to what we, what is different than it. Um, but that is what plays out in this, in this sort of structure. And so the equivalence here is false in a generative way. Right. And I guess that's right. right. These are, it's, it's a comparison. Well, it's an analogy is what right. we want to say. Right, exactly. Right? And, and the point of an analogy is that it's not an identity. Right. Um, it's two things that we know to be different. Right. And, um, the, and the, balance, you know. the balance sheet never resolves, right? It's never, yeah. right? It, there's, there's never a balanced budget in this comparison, right? And obviously we <laughs> use that, that, you know, that term on purpose because ultimately what this coming back to the question of commodification, this conjures, right? I mean, a very, very sort of simplistic foundational model in marxist theory is that of the relationship of two different commodities being mediated through money which is meant to 
make a universal equivalence between them, right? Uh, yeah. An identical comparison is how it's framed right. in Marx's right. this, theory. This idea that every comparison, and and you get this in you get this in Nietzsche as well. Oh, I mean, um, you know, it's the, not just the Marx's idea theory. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the the idea that that what an abstract comparison or a figure does mm -hmm. is it tells you that two things are exactly the same and it's lying about it. Right. And it's, and it's, and maybe at best it's aware that it's telling a lie. Right. And kind of right. playing with the fact that it's lying right. to you. Uh, exactly. And, and so what we would say, and this is why we're saying these are analogies, right? Um, is that no, no, like the generative creative cr creation Generative creativity, uh, the 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 mediation as it relates both in reproduction, in narrowly production, right, in money creation, in in pricing, it, right. This is a, a generative, participatory, communal, congregational structure of agency, participation, creativity, and ultimately a, a sort of process of reproduction which doesn't mean it's necessarily good right we can see how how the this mediation is playing out violently because of its premises uh in nate's character in the way nate is abuses and, and is violent towards jewels um and and yet we can also see the necessity and this sort of underlying generative relationality that can't be can't be ascribed solely to that violence either and so this this sort of the way this non-identical relationship plays out is really i mean it, it's sort of it, it induces dysphoria because it's it's never settles right um and and that that un, there's something unsettling about these comparisons that really open up questions about you know, I mean, we can we can say right, like, like redemption or accountability or uh, or how like should should people be generally condemned absolutely versus are people absolutely good? Like these sort of moralistic questions get opened up in ways that there's not a clean answer to. Yeah, and and I I think that this view of money as equivalence mm -hmm. right um as as a universal equivalent necessarily uh it it maps onto media and mediation right that money as a medium of exchange yeah um, a medium for commodities uh but also this show as a medium that you know is is facilitating all of these you know these kind of interesting and thought-provoking comparisons yeah between different experiences, you know, good and bad. Yeah. Um, you know, you you bring up Nate Jacobs, and I think that, I mean, it's it's interesting because at at the end of season two, you know, as as I as I kind of hinted at, um, there's this school play, mm -hmm. right? And the school play is sort of this highly reflexive like this isn't you know like if like if you watch this this is just it's very clear that the play is is a figure for the show it's yeah it's um, called our life right i mean it's like you know yeah and and they introduce they introduce it um i can't remember the exact line but it basically is like this may not be your experience but this is our experience yeah, exactly. or something you yeah, know yeah, which yeah. is this kind of like non-identity right but nate watching it and watching particularly this musical number 
that is basically making fun of him. Yeah. Um, making fun of his, you know, kind of violent and repressed, like, you know, that everybody on earth can see except for Nate yeah. that, that his masculinity is like intensely homoerotic. Yeah, yeah, and it's this yeah, like yeah. dance number where this, you know, really, um, kind of scrawny character who who earlier in the show named Ethan who kind of gets um gets passed over for not being masculine enough right, by right. Kat. Yeah, yeah. Um sort of he he kind of lampoons Nate Nate's sort of you know violent masculinity and Nate ends up being one of the people who's triggered watching this play. Mm-hmm. Um and you know part of that is like there is a messiness of like your peers are making a play that's making fun of you right. specifically and out right? at you um, <laughs> at some level right like he even says yeah. at one point like this is homophobic like yeah um, yeah 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 um but there also is the play elicits kind of um the most dysphoric reactions from characters Nate and also Cassie, Cassie. who disavow that that the mediation that the play is doing is playful and creative right rather than just cleanly um uh telling a story and then saying you're this this character you're this character you're this character right and maybe at first glance it seems to do that right just like at first glance maybe the show seems to do that or money seems to do that Ooh, um (laughs) but then you find yourself cross-identifying right with with all of these different characters at once, yeah, right? And that sort of is like we talk about, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of linguistic relationships, right? Money is, you know, it's accounting, right? And what is an account of something, right? It's a story yeah. of how it happened. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and this play is Lexi's story of how it right. happened. And and Lexi um, is Cassie's sister, right? So very, yeah. very, you know, and, and, and someone who... You know, as she says, right? She she never could live up to her sister, right? Cassie, of course, is you know. I mean, we say like she's she's pitched to the audience as like incredibly hot, like blonde bombshell trope, right? Like this sort of mm-hmm. sort of dynamic, and and ends up uh, ends up with Nate by the end of season two, and then they you know, and this is very fraught because she like Nate sort of cheats on Maddie, who's her best friend, with Cassie a whole blow up there. So there's a lot of complicated sort of things that yeah, go on here. Well, and, and there's another like really interesting kind of cross identification, right. Is, um, Nate, it, it's a different fixation, but he also has a compulsive fixation on Cassie as well as. Jim. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. you know, that, and, and in both cases, right. Something is being shored up. Yes. There. Um, and, and in the case of, you know, Cassie and Maddie, both of them, I mean, when Maddie is introduced season one as kind of like Nate's first partner, um, you know, it's, we get in Nate's flashback, like, you know, Nate really loved Cassie, or sorry, loved Maddie because Maddie is hairless. Right, yeah, yeah, (laughs) just literally like like that she, that she is nothing like a man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is the complete opposite, you know, and so there's, there's some shoring up that's, that's happening there. Right. Um, in the same way that, you know, the fixation with Jules, right, is is shoring up that I mean it's it's comp it's more complicated. It's more complicated. You know, I, I I think that I think that that dynamic for Nate, that kind of abusive, compulsive 
you know, objectifying and pursuing Jules, right, is a way of one, shoring up that, you know, he still is in this masculine position, yes. even in the context of his kind yes. of, you know, homoerotic uh, leanings. Um, but I think it's also shoring up this idea that he has that, um, that he can balance, that he can fully compartmentalize. Yes these two things and not let them interfere at all and in order to fully compartmentalize he has to fully master each one yes which means whenever he wants to talk to jules whenever he wants to talk to cassie he right. can just call them on the phone and like they're they're just passive object waiting to waiting to get the yeah, phone yeah. call there's even this moment between cassie and nate that almost deconstructs itself where she is basically like pledging to him that she is his property right and like yeah and 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 sort of and there's it's funny how it deconstructs itself because she's kind of in control of this relationship of like i will do anything like she's sort of setting the terms of her yeah becoming, just so you know yeah yeah i'm yours i'm your yeah just <laughs> so you know i will i am your property and there's even a moment where nate is like like don't you feel like small or won't you feel small um and 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 she's like uh you know it's more important to be loved right or or some equivalent of that and and some non-equivalent yeah yeah well right <laughs> um and <laughs> And I think what this what this is getting at is right like Nate has this compulsive dream where his his dad Cal right again daddy figure is uh, he is in in the exact position that Cal had Jules in when they were having sex right um, and and so Nate is is terrified right of this maybe you know sublimated repressed desire to be you know to essentially i mean it's an edible desire right to to have sex yeah. with his dad and 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 to be the the bottom right i guess we could say but again this is figural in in so many different ways right and so um and and so all of these things are playing out throughout this dy these dynamics of property and 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 this this shoring up process that you're describing, right? This, this, this inability to let the ambiguity sit, right, and or, or to mm -hmm. to be vulnerable to those ambiguous desires. And so, um, I think, you know, it, it might be it might be nice, like as we keep moving through. I mean, we, we're we're already, you know, we've already been going for a while, and we need to keep moving to to. There's this you you pointed out in an article that was written that I think mm -hmm. gets at some of this this sort of general, um, you know, I mean, the, the general, uns the, the, the inability for, let me, let me put this a different way. Euphoria's sort of resistance to things settling or becoming stable in an identical way across yep. comparisons. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's constantly destabilizing clean expectations yes. of, kind of traditional cause and effect relationships yeah. um and and you know clearly delineated good and bad and you know i think we want to get a little bit into later kind of what some of these uh genealogies are in film right but like it it you know it should go without saying 
that there's such a thing as art cinema yeah, yeah. Um, and lots of, you know, modernist movements and like lo lots of approaches to media that are all about um, flaunting the ability of abstract film form, yeah. right? The, the fact that film is not, you know, identically yeah. real life, yeah, yeah. that there's somebody who can edit two shots together yeah. and ooh, magic, yeah. right? Um, that this doesn't have to necessarily be directed towards shoring up a sense, a, a particular kind of realism yes. that you don't notice that you're watching something that's abstractly constructed. Right. Um, and like, yeah. just just like form itself, right? This what what we're saying is that the social fabric is is quite is malleable as well, right? That's the that's yeah. what's being communicated, right? At, at some level here, and so yeah, I, I'll throw it back to you. Well, yeah, so this this article was in The New Yorker and it's called uh, The Addictive Chills and Thrills of Euphoria. Uh, it's by Naomi Fry, who is a staff writer um, for The New Yorker. And it's just kind of a, a TV review. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I think that her her issue with it, with the show, um, and it and it is mostly a negative review. Mm is is sort of exactly this right that it this idea basically that the show does not do what what a show is supposed to which right? is foreclosed um <laughs> <laughs> yeah which <laughs> which is nothing <laughs> it's it's supposed to yeah. it's supposed to be like as predictable as real life yeah yeah so i'll just read one quote because i think that this really does get at all the things that we're saying uh -huh. um which is despite the potential juiciness of these characters Euphoria is not a show to watch for deep dives into its protagonist's psychologies. Counterintuitive uh, for a show where so much circles around addiction and mental health, which, you know, already I'm like, like, I feel like there's nothing but deep dives. And it's just the nature of these deep dives is that you don't reach the bottom. Exactly. Right. And yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and I think in a certain way, speaking kind of figuratively here, if you can't reach the bottom how do you know that it's even deep yeah. you know is sort of what's being evoked here yeah yeah so counterintuitive for a show where so much circles around addiction and mental health rue is supposedly our emotional center which again right i think we would also say that she's supposedly the emotional right. center right but that's kind of the point is that it's a show that's all about rue and yet not yeah. right yeah yeah and the show uses her suffering as a vector to telegraph characterological fullness Oof. but these attempts often feel unsatisfying partly because the show is unable to pick a consistent tone the show itself seems unsure about rue's motives so i mean i think maybe we we front-loaded this so much that that this doesn't even need that much analysis <laughs> honestly but um you know, I think that the show's like, this is kind of mistaking the fact that the show is is choosing not to resolve who Rue is or let Rue's character be sort of, you know, she looks in a mirror and it's the exact same thing. It's like, no, she looks in a mirror and there's all these memories and possibilities and yeah, other yeah, things. Yeah. And, you know, the meaning spills out of the character. What, what, I, um, what I- Spills over. Yeah, what I love about this too is like Naomi Fry, um, manages to just evocatively describe exactly what the show is doing right and, and then just be like yeah and that's why i don't like it um yeah it's like, and that's why it, it failed to yeah, not do this. yeah exactly it's just it's just like such such a proto 
prototypical, like, just like, it obviously communicated its, its characterological unfullness. It's, it, 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 it's, you know, ir- irresolvability, it's inability to fully satisfy that, yeah. that absolute desire to close. Whereas this is, whereas this reviews like a report card yeah. where everything you just listed is a different category yeah. and she just gave each one an F. Yeah, yeah. Right? But just like beautifully, absolutely beautifully described it. I just think it's so uncanny that like, that, <laughs> yeah, like just, yeah, anyway, I, I think it's so, yeah. it's so funny. No, this... This this Picasso painting uh, deeply unsettles the human form. Yeah, um, <laughs> and that's why I don't like it because it's just not me. Yeah. it's just not me. Yeah, it right? Felt, it's it's dysphoria. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and I think we can move from that. Like you know, this is actually a great place to like talk about um, some of the the public interpretation that that this like happened in the wake of. You know, it's it's sort of this ongoing communion of every Sunday and all the, the tweets, right? This is the, you know, famously the most, Euphoria is the most tweeted sh- about show of the 2020s, right? And I know we're early, but still, that is a feat. Um, and so mm-hmm. we were playing... And I think in HBO history, it's only behind Game of Thrones. Right. And so, you know, that's a fun comparison historically. Someone should write that paper. <laughs> um, but, um, and so, like, there's very much this, like, you know, I mean, Naomi Fry performed it there, like this mimetic kind of uh, uh, sort of creative interpretive process, right? And, you know, we even, like one of the classic like version of this that I see all the time is these like Euphoria Out of Context account or just like all these people putting collages of screenshots together to make meeting out of the different like, like, there's one that I saw that was like, here's the way doors are used to mediate character interactions. And it's, so it's mm-hmm. like Cassie and Maddie oh, and beautiful. Fez yeah. and Ash. And like, we could keep going. Right. And it's like performing and mimetically performing this sort of collage approach of creating these comparisons. Right. And, and these yeah. analogies. And, and the, the, yeah, right. The, the kind of figural analogies that, um, yeah, and it's it's funny because I hadn't actually seen that that door one. Yeah. And doors were, I mean, that was another thing that I was sort of thinking about talking yeah. about because it is kind of, it is interesting that that this sort of these, what essentially are like boundaries. Yeah. Right. Um, these kinds of. Um, They're like fabrics. The in outer, a way. Yeah. <laughs> the outermost edge yeah. of of what we can consider to be inside. Yeah. Is actually again and again not not protecting something that's fully outside yeah. right um but actually what what lies beyond each of these houses and this is really interesting thinking with suburbia yeah. and also suburbia being something that's i mean talk about fraught right, right. um you know is especially suburbia, for queerness right <laughs> yeah yeah this is shoring up this isolated atomized uh nuclear family um and yet uh these these streets Mm. in in euphoria Mm. and especially the um these this kind of system of back alleys behind all of the houses um both walking but also uh you know the roads and characters driving right like there's all all these ways in which every time a character is like thrown out they're actually thrown onto something that's public, right? Right, and right. something that's shared. Um, and so there's there's a there's a sense in which these these outsides are actually 
they're caught up in in maintaining all of our little insides, yep. right? Um, and and there are these possibilities of quote unquote escape, right? But that's you're not finding an outside, right? Like you're you're finding refuge and recourse in the fact that there's not one little container that houses you. Yeah, yeah. Right. Are, right. That yeah. There are all these liminal spaces that are public, right? And that yeah. that that are like that are what maybe we would want to call like can can contained does not even be the right word, but they are within because there is no outside the public mm-hmm. margins, right? So it's not just these suburban houses with their doors and inside and outside and fences and like you know there's there's the scene from the the essentially like the rue on the run episode where she's climbing fences like moving between suburban backyard and backyard into liminal space and and into a trash can and like to hide from the cops who are chasing her and and all of these public refuges right these public spaces and like a trash can is a great example of one right it's a it's like you know the it is a form of public infrastructure right just like everything else is like streets themselves too and and so these public margins are all variously affirmed as forms of refuge that are nevertheless always inside this this social fabric right and so all of the mediations of these spatialities and and we're going to talk particularly about space and congregation in a bit um Mm -hmm. but that they're shown and it is performed through the narrative of this the mobility in the show that that connects in all the characters in this matrix of uh of non-identity that there's a there's an inalienable publicness to these margins yeah and and just to just to expand that that mosaic a little bit yeah. more um i think you know another place where we see this kind of outside that's actually maintaining the inside um you know featured is during this play yeah. you know where there's there are disruptions that come from outside of the play um you know cassie eventually just like interrupts it and kind of stops it from happening mm-hmm. and then there's this sort of you know they work out in the dialogue was that part of the play was it not and it sort of is you know the show's at least um gesturing towards the idea that that the disruption is actually part of the play but then the characters themselves you know they're backstage right right um they're backstage they're off stage they're in the hallways they're you know and they're trying to work out what is going on in this show and does this need damage control yeah. and planning an intervention in the show from outside of the show and and I just want to point out right that like isn't that what you know Mondays through Saturday on Twitter yeah. is yeah, yeah. right yeah. when we're talking about euphoria yeah um you know we we sort of are off screen yeah. right yeah, and yeah. we're we're off stage and yet you know this this discourse right it it's, I mean, it's literally, it's a character in the show. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But also when season three comes out, there's no way it won't be informed by what the reactions were to season two. Right. And, and I'm sure complicated ways. Yep. Um, but like, that's that's gonna be, you know, that's that's part of the production yeah. as well. And and I mean, you just said production, right? So, I mean, this yeah. staging, this play, this <laughs> process yeah, of yeah. not only just like producing a show, right? Like, like... But also production in general and reproduction and social production and all of these aspects and we would bring it back to money and and the production of our world intertemporally through 
participatory means, um, this is all of a piece, right? And and so I think one of the one of the, the formulations that I that I I wanted to sort of come up with when we were talking about suburbs and, and the way the suburbs are produced as a as a structure of of exclusion that all that is that is violent but is never absolute, right? Is yep. this sense of the 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 show offering a sort of path or a theme of making meaning in the confines of the suburbs, right? In the confines mm-hmm. of patriarchy, of, of cishet patriarchy. And and the way that these confines are always public, they are always accessible in a participatory sense, and that they are a generative creative space for working out comparatively and, and through non-identity, um, a, a sort of a rhythm of life and, and, and change and how agency can, can be through participation, you know, essentially inputted into this structure to change it. Right. And that's, those are the dynamics and the problems. Subversion is harbored in the same moment as, as kind of buttressing or or shoring up something that's problematic is, is this potential to subvert it. And you know, and it's not like you're either necessarily like just doing one or the other, right? Like I think yeah, that it's all the part of the rule, the role of Jules in in the show with respect to Nate is that all of these things that Nate was doing to shore up his his masculinity, Jules's character is like, aha, no, actually, you were you were this whole time also developing your queerness yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know um right it's sort right. of this was these were both happening yeah yeah yeah, too. yeah so it's not even just That's like beautiful. you know obviously yeah. on this podcast we we do try to try to subvert um yeah and and there's histories of queer media that that do subvert but i think that that part of that kind of methodology of, of subversion is showing that 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 shoring up is never identically shoring up yeah, right? yeah, that, yeah. that it always is kind of subversion too and and when we think about you know this these kind of you know the suburbs and nuclear families and this kind of like you again you know you you fixate on every head of the household looking over to the next household yeah. comparing myself <laughs> to the other bread yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it's like it's so homoerotic yeah. you know it's it's like it's our families yeah. against their yeah, families yeah, yeah. right or you know the school sports right nathan's a jock you know plays football yeah it's our boys compared to their to boys their boys yeah, yeah. Right? how strong um, they are and you know we could go yeah. on um, playfully with counting yeah, yeah. right they score points <laughs> they score points um, they're just wrestling <laughs> with these dynamics um, <laughs> um yeah. and and yeah i mean i think i think well, well we sort of what we've done so far is we've created like we're really we've woven the something here right a, a fabric to, to keep playing around with and what i wanted to we're pretty great yeah, yeah i know thanks um what i wanted to move uh move us into is is like some of the there's a few readings, right? I think I think this will be helpful as we're sort of coming into the you know the latter half of of this uh, mm-hmm. this conversation, and and one of the things you know something we've we've continually brought up is this sense of queer congregation, right? And there's multiple registers yeah. in which that that's coming up, and um, there is a scholar, a friend friend of the show, friend of Money on the Left, who <laughs> has thought about mediated congregation as. Uh, 
as a as a structure in both a historical uh you know we could even say a metaphysical structure but and and uh and her name is erica robles anderson who is um a media and communications professor at nyu and um and she wrote about churches right and church architecture and and mediation in churches um and the title of the the uh the, the article we're going to read from is uh, about a particular, it's, it's called The Crystal Cathedral, Architecture mm-hmm. for Mediated Congregation. And it is about a particular cathedral um, that is associated with a Protestant megachurch. Um, and, and this is yeah, the, the so, Crystal so Cathedral. If, if, you, if you thought it couldn't get more fraught than the suburbs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're talking about <laughs> megachurches in Southern California now in the 20th century. Um Whew. And, and the way she describes this mediated congregation, I think what we appreciated about it is it's so open as a human, as this sort of process of human mediation that is, that is open, but it also is produced in the confines of, res- of a restriction ide- ideological structure, right? So again, if you, like, like you said, Will, if you thought the suburbs were restricted, let's get to a megachurch, right? And so mm-hmm. what I'm going to read from is her analysis of the visual order and arrangement of the mediation of this congregation. Because I think it, it, it speaks to something that, the, that Euphoria is doing in, it, in a, almost a systemic way that is kind of uncannily similar in, in ways that we, I think we want to make sense of. And so I'm going to um, read here, but... Um, So, describing the Crystal Cathedral, uh, Erica Mm -hmm. writes, Despite multiplied visual orders and an explosion of spatial arrangements, so, I mean, this should conjure what we've described already about Euphoria, right? The space Mm -hmm. and its conventions clearly played with church members, right? So, here's play. In part, the ability to perceive a connection with others, whether they be outside inside, in-car, seated, central, peripheral, mediated, direct, or invisible, mm-hmm. points to a new cultural understanding of space with which the ministry connected. The discordant elements of automobile, garden, and sanctuary hang together because each differently accommodates a common performance, namely worship this was a congregation well equipped to recognize collective experience across spatial distinctions with detailed studies of his clients right and and neutra i'll I'll say that again across spatial Mm -hmm. distinctions and neutra right who's the um who's who's administering right all, all of this this structure with detailed studies of his clients was able to bridge between the structure of the church, and this unique capacity. Thus, the architectural effect of boundary blurring was a way to capitalize, as a designer, on a sort of performative gestalt, a capacity to recognize common orientation and collective action across spatial disjunctures and distinctions. God, that's beautiful. Wow. This sort of almost reminds me of, you know, again, this like this infrastructure 
we can think with media infrastructures, with social media infrastructures like like Twitter, right? Um, or we can think with the suburbs as infrastructure. Like, it is so interesting when you think with religion because all, all of these all of these figures are like you know you start with different metaphysical assumptions and and the Eucharist is like you know it it can either be self enclosure yeah, right yeah. or or it can be you know or it can be communion in the way that, yeah. that we're talking about. Right. Um, I, or, and just to put it like it can be a capacity yeah. to recognize common orientation across spatially spatial disjunctures and distinctions. Right. So common commonality across difference would be how, how we could describe that in, in its own way. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and this is not to say that there's not, you know, the heads of this, you know, of Nutra, this mega church, yeah. um, you know, that they're not similar to, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg, right, right? right? Like kind of using this medium to to monitor and profile people. And yet the production is not just identical to that. Right. Like that's 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 there, but this other reading is there too. Right. And and this reading at the level of form, right? Like it's it's participating, right? Like it's almost like that section that you read where, you know, it's um the gardens or the cars, you yeah. know, like it's, it's almost like you could add the essays, yeah, 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 you yeah, know, yeah, that, yeah. that would be written afterwards. Yeah. Right. Um, because the tweets. It is, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. And so I think crucially what we get from this like structure and performative gestalt of mediation and this blurring of boundaries that Erica is describing in the mega church and that we are, mapping and and making an analogy for euphoria is this way of processing in a commun in a communal sense um memory tradition again right back to this this origin point with regards to trauma and memory and grief and and i think this relates really potently especially for queer communities to the 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 lived experience of the last decades right of recent decades and, and of course beyond that of suffering and trauma and and violence and and the memory of that um a, a, as we reach backward by by creatively opening right in the present and and in the future and in a sense closing our eyes and imagining right and, and almost dreaming in in this euphoric state um and mm. and yeah i mean i think i think this is really important i think you know, I know you had a lot of examples that, you know, you wanted to bring up and, and wade into this question as it relates to euphoria. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the show and there's something really, you know, again, kind of um, nice or poetic about this, right? That like, I do think that there are a lot of citations to both themes, but also even like what feel like citations to kind of specific moments and like kind of touchstone um mm -hmm. queer queer moving image history mm -hmm. um you know that uh that i i think is poetic right because it's these are not necessarily identically citations right. you know yeah, yeah. um because this because there is this history that becomes this sort of you know um tapestry then from which euphoria does kind of maybe in some ways directly maybe in some ways indirectly follow and build on. Um, and I almost said this earlier when you mentioned Nate Jacobs and that kind of like homoeroticism of, of fascism, 
I think of Scorpio Rising from 1963, mm. um, this, uh, you know, experimental short film by Kenneth Anger uh, that that puts classic masculine Americana um, imagery, but also fascist imagery and and homoerotic like fetish imagery, mm-hmm. you know, kind of all all next to each mm-hmm. other. Um, and I and I think that that kind of side by side sort of association, right? That this like this um, this mid century American masculinity actually harbors all three of these things mm-hmm. at once, and in a way that's that's not it's not stable, but it's also it's not totally unstable. Either, yeah, right. Yeah. It kind of hobbles along, mm-hmm. um, and it's not like and I guess another way to say it's not unstable. It, sort of what I mean by that is like, it's not like something has to give and it has to become fully straight or it has to become fully queer, right? right? Like I, th- I think that, um, that there, there's a way in which uh, mid-century white American patriarchy cannot help but hold all of these things in tandem, mm-hmm. right? And in tandem in ways that are very uncritical, right? And I think that this is what, what uh, films like Scorpio Rising, you know, Kenneth Anger, we can also from the same period, you know, think of like Portrait of Jason or Jack Smith's Flaming Creatures, right? Also 1963. These are all films that portray intimacy as having multiple meanings mm. that are that are at play, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and they they courted controversy at the mm-hmm. time too. Scorpio Rising had <laughs> had the Nazi party complain about it, which to Always me a good is, is a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which to me totally reminds me of Nate at the end of the play being like, this is homophobic. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think that that's kind of a similar move. Um, but then, you know, I mean, Shirley Clark's Portrait of Jason. I mean, the, the term portrait is really interesting too, thinking with the play, right? Um, where Portrait of Jason is this experimental compilation of like a like a many many hours long um, interview uh, with this gay performer um, who who plays this character named Jason and you kind of you know learn that his name is not really Jason and he he tells all these stories anyway and it sort of is this like well he he wasn't presenting his true self but it's like you know he kind of was though also um and and that kind of like and then that's teasing out what the portrait is right um and shirley clark meanwhile is a white woman Mm -hmm. right who's who's the one making this portrait right and is it her talking is it jason talking right and similarly at the time like you also had people saying that this is exploitative right and in kind of a way that i think should resonate Mm -hmm. but then later like another citation you know jumping up to like you know 80s and 90s and kind of um which i think is like really what the show is most directly kind of plunging for alternative readings Mm -hmm. is you know the the underground new york cinema of of the 90s which um tongues untied by marlon riggs which is kind of lyrical it, it sort of is exploring how both homophobia and queer subversion are harbored within both black and white masculinity. Um, and there, and there was a, what felt to me like a pretty direct citation 
um, in the first episode of season two of Euphoria, where, where Rue almost overdoses and you hear, you hear her pulse mm. um, as she's kind of teetering on the balance of death. Um, and this is, this is very all over the place in Euphoria as they, you know, every time there's a scene that is kind of accelerating towards a danger that's going to change everything, mm. It's simultaneously like being held in tandem with a bunch of other scenes that that follow other logics, mm -hmm. right? That are that somehow again, like this cathedral, right? All hang, are, hang together mysteriously. Um, and in tongues untied, uh, you know the the pulse, um, you know it's it's in, it's evocative of HIV and kind of you know um, teetering on the balance of life and death. Um, but it's, it's cut together with the, the rhythms and repetitions of people learning homophobic slurs, um, as well as the repetitions of, of affirmations, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, so the intimacy of, of this pulse ends up both harboring, like, death and hurt and like you know patriarchal violence and the rhythms of patriarchal violence and at the same time what does a pulse do right like that's life um that is life continuing to to go on and ultimately it's it's simultaneously and in and in complicated ways right like those those repetitions and those those conversations and like all of these kind of micro immediate manifestations of this kind of larger reproductive patriarchal structure um, each harbor these these moments that are simultaneously subversive mm. right because masculinity fails on its own yeah. terms yeah, yeah. you know it's 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 premised on on this you know european imagination of sovereignty and of you know absolute freedom which to which possess. is defined by yeah, to possess and to possess and to unilaterally yeah. act upon yeah. the world, yeah. right? Um, that of course is not actually like how the world no. works. So of course it fails. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, I just I I think that it's really interesting that in this in this sort of meta reflexive about its own history yeah. way, right? Like these sort of formal and thematic citations of earlier like queer media like i think that that actually ends up being part of of the of the kind of collective um desire for redemption yeah. that that euphoria is sort of um trying to you know struggle with like one is just recovering these these memories so that they're not lost yeah um but also I think it's a really good push back against a lot of, you know, kind of tendencies that, I mean, certainly when I was a, you know, campus organizer in my undergrad years ago, right? Like there's, there's this line that people draw in their heads a lot of the time between, you know, like a boundary in their life when, you know, they became politically active right. and a political, you know, organizer and and they carry shame 
about who they were before yeah, that moment. Yeah, yeah. And and societally, right? Like you really saw this this like really problematic rhetoric in the in the um, Bernie campaign and and some of the um, you know the kind of constellation of different quote unquote you know socialist left media institutions like like Jacobin, you know that kind of there there's a just so story that gets told about neoliberalism mm -hmm. and about the last um you know however many decades the last five decades yeah. that that it's just when politics stopped yeah yeah you know um and sudden and all of this was just everybody was in a malaise yeah. and it you know everyone was asleep right um and it was dormant and none of it had any meaning and of course there's all kinds of queer erasure that's that's happening here because right? this is aids this is act, act up, up. This yeah is, yeah yeah. See, um, see Dan Berger and Emily Hobson's book. We interviewed them for Money on the Left. Just like they tell a history of radicalism in this era specifically. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that that part of that history of radicalism is actually a, a queer film history and yeah. a queer history of media activism because you know all of these experimental films like like this is activism. This is reckoning with form. Mm -hmm. Um, with the formal dimensions yep. of activism, you know, it's not activism as work, quote unquote, no, you know, no, just, yeah. just keep your head down and knock on doors, no. you know, it's actually, you know, it's, it's activism in the sense of, you know, art as activism, mm -hmm. as creating discursive space for people to think differently about yes. things and for things to follow in its wake that aren't perceived as yeah as jarring and, you know but that are better yeah. than what came before and, and for people to make sense of who they are where they're they've come from and where they want to go like like fundamentally i and 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 the and the political means both at the individual level which is always already dependent and and in all of the the different scales and registers in which they want to act right i mean act like that that so yeah that that acting that is hmm. is very yeah it's it's always already ongoing and and i love the point that you made about um right like the who we are right now like if we think of ourselves as you know whether it's like enlightened or or in some sense conscience of who we are and what we want um both at an individual and in, in a, you know a, all the way up to a global level um it it's always already in process of of sort of becoming that right so it's not that it, there's not like the the before and then the after right the time it's outside of time would be would be exactly i think how i'd want to put it and so um and yeah, I, to me, I think I think this is so powerful. Um, yeah, well, and it and it's part of I think as as a practice, what we want to do with with money on the left. Like yeah. I think that like I want to fold in this media history with you know like like I I think that 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 kind of just so story where there's a discontinuity and nothing had value yeah. because of neoliberalism yeah. or something, you know, and like nobody was thinking real thoughts, yeah. like everything was a, was an illusion or something. Um, you know, like, I think that we're, that our, our project in part exists to kind of, you know, destabilize that just so story, yes. you know, show that there's, that there's a continuity of activism. Yes. And also that the moments that, you know, I mean, I could think of, you know, 
um, your recent interview with Andrew Elrod yeah. about Nixon's price controls, yeah. you know, this kind of like lost history of different ways of thinking about prices yeah. than than this just so story about inflation yeah that that kind of is the right wing side of this of this double-sided coin yeah um you know where you know you had inflation and and therefore politics had to stop yeah, yeah. right um and you know i think that we're showing that no like it was never you know the before was not edenic it was not yeah you yeah, know yeah. like like this is all it's all part of a continuous messy story that we're trying to recover and yeah and you no, know media media activism is is a big part of that story but i think yeah you know, what were you gonna say i was first? gonna say this reminds me of uh actually a quote by um miriam kaba the abolitionist um from her uh recent collection of uh, essays and and uh you know um the the one that just came out and 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 it <laughs> It's it relates to this imagination of our world and other worlds differently, and it relates to like collective projects of of mediation, right? And 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 intentional mediation. And I and I I kind of want to read it. it it's um, Kaba writes: being intentionally in relation with one another, a part of a collective, helps you not only imagine new worlds but also to imagine our worlds differently. And I think from the abolitionist perspective, right? It's like there are these carceral systems of, of relation. And, 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 and what Kaba is offering here is, is this way of, you know, being intentional in relation as a form of abolitionist practice directionally towards the rearticulation of systems in a way that abolishes carceral logics at all scales, right? Um, of of the world, I mean, we can say, right? Um, as per, as as precisely in relation to this question of imagining new worlds as a way of, of, of reimagining our world, and and so this intentional relationship of imaginings in collectivity. I mean, what, mm -hmm. that's queer communion, right? So that, that there's a sense in yeah. which that is queer communion and queer congregation. And euphoria is is a part of this process. It participates in this mode, right? In it, of, uh, of rearticulation and reimagining and, and destabilization. Yeah. And, and, right. And, right. And, and we're participating right. in that too. Exactly. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that, that maybe what, what we're doing here is, um, you know, I, I think maybe it, it should make the political stakes of of euphoria or those political resonances for those who want to read them yeah. more available. Yeah. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. Because, you know, this is, you know, even though it's not a show yeah. that, you know, there's there's not a character who runs for office yeah. or something, you know, like that's that's not really part of it. Um, but, you know, this is, you know, we're talking about uh, such a wider yeah um view of politics and of activism yeah right um that that is um that that is willing to to wrestle with with these kind of like all the different meanings of these different forms that we have yeah. and the ways that we participate yeah um and and all of these things and i and i i, I think i want to put a finer point on this too because i think there's a way to um read read things like like that intentional relation in collectivity and and abolitionism as such as flat negation right um as as just as merely an opposition to 
a set of circumstances as they are imagined to exist, right? And I think, like, if you read the the, the rest of that Kaba essay, that's that's you, we can throw that out the window. But mm-hmm. but like, I think there's a way to get here through, and specifically with euphoria through form. Um, and and what's interesting about that too is it's also about this restoration of the the history of film theory, right, and film form. Mm-hmm. And and so I wanted to read from a book, um, which is like the canonical post-structural film theory collection of essays, right? And it's it's edited. Right. And and when you say post-structural, right, like that's another in the just so story yeah. about how politics stopped happening after you know the eighties. Um, post-structuralism is what replaced yeah. real materialist Marxist yeah, analysis, yeah, yeah, exactly. right? In that story, exactly. So, I mean, like Derrida so I, I came think, and destroyed everything by showing how it all slips away into yeah, difference. Yeah, we, right? we built all this stuff, and then Derrida deconstructed it. Yeah, rascal. Um, <laughs> but I think it's part of this. Like, I, I want to position mm-hmm. this, and I hope that this is coming through to listeners. You know, as kind of part and parcel of this recovery of um, queer media activism, right? Is like, is the activism of of scholarship, right? Yeah. And like, and those forms, right? Yeah, yeah. This, this is all, it's all forms. Exactly. And and so like, I, I wanted to read from this, this book, which is called Viewing Positions, Ways of Seeing Film. Um, and it is edited and introduced by Linda Williams, who is, um, a Berkeley film scholar, right? Post-structuralist Berkeley film scholar. And the particular essay I wanted to read from was from uh, Judith Main uh, called Paradoxes of Spectatorship. And so, you know, in this essay, she's taking on the sort of the way we think about spectatorship and then the gaze, right? So yeah. the gaze, of course, well, if some G-A-Z-E. Of, right. Some of us will know. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Um, um, some of us will know um, the gaze, like in gaze theory, from the sense of the the, the male gaze, right? We've we've heard this, uh, I'm sure, and and um, and this problem of the male gaze, right? As as sovereignty, which I, you show quite well in your uh, in your money on the left essay on money beyond sovereignty, you you explicitly thematize gaze theory to go beyond this sense of the sovereign male gaze, right? For yeah, I mean, and it's and it sort of is what what we were just talking about with with masculinity figured as um, requiring a world that's that's passive yeah. and ends up being coded as feminine in order to act maximally freely. Yeah. So nothing can act back, right. <laughs> you know? And then the gaze becomes a, a form of um, like a spectatorial position that is created through cinematic form. Yeah. And, you know, originally like classical Hollywood is what the original gaze theory was kind of criticizing. Um, in order to kind of, you know, you can have women characters, but the the spectatorial position, you're in control of them, right? right? They're eventually, they're, you know, they're going to be objectified and fetishized, or if they do act out and they're a femme fatale, they're going to be punished by the narrative, right? And it will be revealed that their agency was actually a ruse um, and they were a succubus, right? Right. right. That, that was, you know, yeah. sucking off of the real agency of the male character it, who has to come to their senses, right? All of this kind of stuff. But like that, that structure of kind of compulsively and violently disciplining and objectifying the object so that it's continues to be coded as passive yeah. is what's meant 
initially by the male gaze. Right. And so this book is destabilizing that in the name of post-structuralism into mm-hmm. viewing positions, right? So it, it's yeah. it, there's a multiplicity here. And so we're going to we want to affirm that. And so you'll see how this comes out particularly in this uh Judith Main uh chapter and I'll, I'll read from it. So Main yeah. writes, what remains vital in the critical examination of scholarship and she of course means film theory, right? Is the recognition that no negotiation is inherently or purely oppositional, but that the desire for anything inherent or pure is itself a fiction that must be contested. And, you know, I don't want to necessarily get too fixated on Maine's language here, but what I do want to say here is what is being described, and maybe there's even a certain purity to this that is not mm-hmm. a non-identical purity, um, mm-hmm. is... is Essentially, this sense that there are multiple positions for yeah. viewing in a filmic sense, right? In a, in a, in in both care at through the camera, but through spectators our spectatorship as viewers, but also mm-hmm. through the characters themselves of negotiating difference in ways that are inherently non-oppositional, right? Yeah, and this is and this, and this is why it's contested not negated correct right and so there's 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 still can there's still a, a way to contest the carceral logics right in the systems but the purely oppositional negation right of of othering and absolutely rejecting is one that Maine is describing again here at the level of the apparatus of of, of film of of the cinematic sort of space as mm. as one that fails right uh, in its masculinist fantasy of absolute possession. And so what this means is it opens a broader filmic participatory congregational system, right? And one that is that can that can be produced, right? There's a production. Like this is this is produced. And so this is I think another way too of complicating like as you said that story of there being no politics in post-structural non-identity, right? And this is centrally where we feel MMT comes in, crucially, right? As a politics of money via the democratization of, of, of the form, of the media form, as that which necessarily coheres, produces, and, and can bring together the difference, right? And differences, mm-hmm. and I, different identities. And, you know, people and, and, you know, we could even extend this, the environment, animals. And, and I think, you know, as we're potentially about to close out here, maybe we can bring it back to, uh, you know, someone who's a member of the Money <laughs> on the Left editorial collective. Um, and it is Scott Ferguson's book when he specifically describes essentially this con congregational mediation on the yeah, terms what's the of name money. of that book it is declarations of dependence money aesthetics and the politics of care um and and you know I, i'm gonna i'm gonna read from his third chapter um where he sort of works out this relationship of of congregational we we even mentioned the eucharist of sort of mm-hmm. we can even call it a queer eucharistic congregation at the level of media and so, um, so in, in describing a sort of his, his 
relationship to MMT and what this politics of money and care can offer. He writes, as a sensuously and socially involving answer to an expanding political and economic order, right? He's talking here particularly about the Eucharist of the High Middle Ages, but this yeah, is also this a model. Is, this is Thomas Aquinas's era. Right. So this is this would be the the 1200s. Yeah. This is also a model, right? And he'll say that in a second mm -hmm. for a larger way of seeing mediation. Um, yes. The Eucharist of the High Middle Ages offers a rich model for lending shape and sense to the mystery of mediation at a distance. Unlike the model of immediate mediation, which we should say is... Which I, I've called immediation. immediation. I don't know if you knew that. Yes, yeah. I, do, I did know that. He told me that. Um, which, which we <laughs> should say in, like, in the lineage of German media theory and philosophy is force. That's what immediate yep. mediation is. The force of negation. Yeah, and and I, I think also just really quickly, like there's there's a connection then between force yes. and mediation as identity. Yes. Right? Because because if the only thing that mediates is force, right, is you know, two things hit against each other. Violence. Right. Or there's a conflict. Yeah. yeah violence is quantifiable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, it's gonna go in one direction or, or the, the other, other direction. Yeah. Um, and so there's a way in which quantification in the context of force yeah. is naturally homogenizing. Yeah. But that's not actually the be all and end all yeah. of quantification, no. right? Of accounting. Right. And again, see our you know interview with, yeah, with yeah. Paolo Quattrone. Um, I'll say too here, I mean, Adorno not only makes the argument that this these regimes of identity are fascist inherently, but also that um, culture itself, right? In the dialect of the Enlightenment, him and Horkheimer make the argument that are are commodified and implicated in that quantification project of the Enlightenment. That is inherently fascist, right? So, so this is where, like, yeah. we we inherently fascist because you you posit something as a common identity yes. that everything is that's not actually identical to right. it, right? The, the square peg doesn't fit into the round hole. So what do you do? Um, you kill the square peg. That's essentially what... Yeah. yeah. That's essentially... Yep. And then I, um, and, or or you, you shave off the edges right. of it, right? right. Which, are, which are the people who are at the margins. Yeah, that's a, that's a better way of putting it. So then unlike this model of immediate mediation, we could also say it dialectics, right? Mm -hmm. that, that dominates the modern monetary imaginary, right? This imaginary of how we think about money. Yeah. The Eucharist makes perceptible a boundless metaphysical center and the transcendent, inexhaustible, and non-local co-presence of this center's mediating activity. And yes, a, cent a center that is that is good and bad at once, yes. i.e. euphoria, yes. as opposed to the dysphoria, right? Remember being two things at once. Yes. That's dialectics, right? Right. Dialectics is the science of uh, you have two identities at yeah. once. Something has to give, right? You can think again with force, right? Yeah. Two things occupying the same space yeah. is not possible. One thing is going to have to push out the other, and so this kind of dialectical way of of thinking about you know history and and concepts and ideas, essentially it it positions dysphoria 
as the rule and the motor yeah. of everything. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, what we're articulating here, I think, is you know more resonant with that that deferred, unnameable yeah. concept of euphoria. Yeah. And and so Scott says, let us then affirm the basic perhaps unconscious impulses of a people striving to make sense of the mediating activity that unifies and supports them. Right? Euphoria. <laughs> um, yep. And, and, and the community. And boy, have, and boy, have we been striving to make yeah. sense uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> of yeah. shit on this podcast. I know. And so <laughs> I, I think we, we, we might end with this last sentence, right? For the mystery of Eucharistic me- mediation provides a way for us today to begin perceiving money's boundless omnipresence in the imminent textures of collective life. And that is what we have always already begun, right? Yeah. And that is, that that's essentially the what euphoria is doing, right? Yep. It's it's and and money on the left which you can become a patron of yes. at patreon.com/patreon.eucharist uh, <laughs> at um dot .church yeah. <laughs> dot .church dot, dot .queer congregation. Um yeah. And yeah, I mean yeah, definitely. If you if you found this in any way interesting, enlightening, please support us. Um, if you know with whatever you can, we really appreciate it. And um, yeah, thanks thanks so much for listening. Yeah, thank you all.
Slightly sorry, too flustered to surprise, too flutter.